Hey everyone, what's brown and sticky? A stick! <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Wowzers. If this is... <clears throat> if this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Hey. Hey. Did you see the new artwork? The new cover art for the show? Go check it out if you haven't. It's super badass, and I love it. It was done by an artist named Ruth Anna Evans, who also created the cover of my forthcoming collection, Dark Horse Road and Other Stories. So please go check her out for all your book cover, podcast cover, and general art needs. Link to her Twitter in the show notes. All right, so just going to put this out there. Sweeney Todd is going to be going on a little bit of a hiatus. I thought it was something I could do, and turns out at this point in my life, I cannot. There are a number of personal things that went into this decision, not the least of which is that work has been stomping me into the ground when, when I get home. I have no energy at all to do anything. Yay, capitalism. So, that's going away for a bit. I apologize to anyone who was listening and enjoying it, but I had to make a sacrifice somewhere, and that ended up being the least necessary thing in my life. It will come back, but when, I do not know. Anyway, on with the show. We approached the bed and examined it, a half-tester such as is commonly found in attics devoted to servants. On the drawers that stood near it, we perceived an old faded silk kerchief with the needle still left in a rent half-repaired. The kerchief was covered with dust. Probably it had belonged to the old woman who had last died in that house, and this might have been her sleeping room. I had sufficient curiosity to open the drawers. There were a few odds and ends of female dress, and two letters tied round with a narrow ribbon of faded yellow. I took the liberty to possess myself of the letters. We found nothing else in the room worth noticing, nor did the light reappear, but we distinctly heard, as we turned to go, a pattering footfall on the floor just before us. We went through the other attics, in all four, the footfall still preceding us. Nothing to be seen, nothing but the footfall heard. I had the letters in my hand. Just as I was descending the stairs, I distinctly felt my wrist seized and a faint, soft effort made to draw the letters from my clasp. I only held them the more tightly, and the effort ceased. We regained the bedchamber appropriated to myself, and I then remarked that my dog had not followed us where we had left it. He was thrusting himself close to the fire and trembling. I was impatient to examine the letters, and while I read them, my servant opened a little box in which he had deposited the weapons I had ordered him to bring— took them out, placed them on a table close at my bedhead, and then occupied himself in soothing the dog, who, however, seemed to heed him very little. The letters were short, and they were dated, the dates exactly thirty-five years ago. They were evidently from a lover to his mistress, or a husband to some young wife, not only the terms of expression, but a distinct reference to a former voyage indicated the writer to have been a seafarer. The spelling and handwriting were those of a man imperfectly educated, but still the language itself was forcible. In the expressions of endearment there was a kind of rough, wild love, but here and there were dark and unintelligible hints at some secret not of love, some secret that seemed of crime. "'We ought to love each other,' was one of the sentences I remember, "'for how everyone else would execrate us if all was known.' Again, "'Don't let anyone be in the same room with you at night. You talk in your sleep. 
And again, what's done can't be undone, and I'll tell you there's nothing against us unless the dead can come to life. Here there was underlined in a better handwriting, a female's, they do. At the end of the letter, latest in date, the same female hand had written these words. Lost at sea, the 4th of June, the same day as blank. I put down the letters and began to muse over their contents. Fearing, however, that the train of thought into which I fell might unsteady my nerves, I fully determined to keep my mind in a fit state to cope with whatever of marvelous the advancing night might bring forth. I roused myself, laid the letters on the table, stirred up the fire, which was still bright and cheering, and opened my volume of Macaulay. I read quietly enough till about half-past eleven. I then threw myself dressed upon the bed and told my servant he might retire to his own room, but must keep himself awake. I bade him leave open the door between the two rooms. Thus alone I kept two candles burning on the table by my bedhead. I placed my watch beside the weapons and calmly resumed my Macaulay. Opposite to me the fire burned clear, and on the hearthrug, seemingly asleep, lay the dog. In about twenty minutes I felt an exceedingly cold air pass by my cheek, like a sudden draft. I fancied the door to my right, communicating with the landing place, must have got open, but no, it was closed. I then turned my glance to my left and saw the flame of the candles violently swayed as by a wind. At the same moment, the watch beside the revolver softly slid from the table. Softly. Softly. No visible hand. It was gone. I sprang up, seizing the revolver with the one hand, the dagger with the other. I was not willing that my weapon should share the fate of the watch. Thus armed, I looked round the floor. No sign of the watch. Three slow, loud, distinct knocks were now heard at the bedhead. My servant called out, "'Is that you, sir?' "'No, be on your guard.' The dog now roused himself and sat on his haunches, his ears moving quickly backwards and forwards. He kept his eyes fixed on me with a look so strange that he concentred all my attention on himself. Slowly he rose up, all his hair bristling, and stood perfectly rigid and with the same wild stare." I had no time, however, to examine the dog. Presently my servant emerged from his room, and if ever I saw horror in the human face, it was then. I should not have recognized him had we met in the street, so altered was every lineament. He passed by me quickly, saying in a whisper that seemed scarcely to come from his lips, "'Run! Run! It is after me!' He gained the door to the landing, pulled it open, and rushed forth. I followed him into the landing involuntarily, calling him to stop— but without heeding me, he bounded down the stairs, clinging to the balusters and taking several steps at a time. I heard where I stood the street door open, heard it again clap too. I was left alone in the haunted house. It was but for a moment that I remained undecided whether or not to follow my servant. Pride and curiosity alike forbade so dastardly a flight. I re-entered my room, closing the door after me, and proceeded cautiously into the interior chamber. I encountered nothing to justify my servant's terror. I again carefully examined the walls to see if there were any concealed door. I could find no trace of one, not even a seam in the dull brown paper with which the room was hung. How, then, had the thing, whatever it was, which had so scared him, obtained ingress except through my own chamber? I returned to my room, shut and locked the door that opened upon the interior one, and stood on the hearth, expectant and prepared. I now perceived that the dog had slunk into an angle of the wall and was pressing himself close against it, as if literally striving to force his way into it. I approached the animal and spoke to it. The poor brute was evidently beside itself with terror. 
It showed all its teeth, the slaver dropping from its jaws, and would certainly have bitten me if I had touched it. It did not seem to recognize me. Whoever has seen at the zoological gardens a rabbit fascinated by a serpent cowering in a corner may form some idea of the anguish which the dog exhibited. Finding all efforts to soothe the animal in vain, and fearing that his bite might be as venomous in that state as in the madness of hydrophobia, I left him alone, placed my weapons on the table beside the fire, seated myself, and recommenced my Macaulay. Perhaps, in order not to appear seeking credit for a courage, or rather a coolness which the reader may conceive I exaggerate, I may be pardoned if I pause to indulge in one or two egotistical remarks. As I hold presence of mind, or what is called courage, to be precisely proportioned to familiarity with the circumstances that lead to it, so I should say that I had been long sufficiently familiar with all experiments that appertain to the marvelous. I had witnessed many very extraordinary phenomena in various parts of the world, phenomena that would be either totally disbelieved if I stated them or ascribed to supernatural agencies. Now, my theory is that the supernatural is the impossible, and that what is called supernatural is only a something in the laws of nature of which we have been hitherto ignorant. Therefore, if a ghost rise before me, I have not the right to say, so then, the supernatural is possible, but rather, so then, the apparition of a ghost is contrary to received opinion within the laws of nature, i.e. not supernatural. Now, in all that I had hitherto witnessed, and indeed in all the wonders which the amateurs of mystery in our age record as facts, a material living agency is always required. On the continent, you will still find magicians who assert that they can raise spirits. Assume for the moment that they assert truly. Still, the living material form of the magician is present, and he is the material agency by which, from some constitutional peculiarities, certain strange phenomena are represented to your natural senses. Except, again, as truthful, the tales of spirit manifestation in America. Musical or other sounds, writings on paper produced by no discernible hand, articles of furniture moved without apparent human agency, or the actual sight and touch of hands to which no body seemed to belong. Still, there must be found the medium or living being with constitutional peculiarities capable of obtaining these signs. In fine, in all such marvels, supposing even that there is no imposture, there must be a human being like ourselves, by whom or through whom the effects presented to human beings are produced. It is so with the now familiar phenomena of mesmerism or electrobiology. The mind of the person operated on is affected through a material living agent. Nor, supposing it true that a mesmerized patient can respond to the will or passes of a mesmerizer a hundred miles distant, is the response less occasioned by a material fluid, call it electric, call it odic, call it what you will, which has the power of traversing space and passing obstacles, that the material effect is communicated from one to the other. Hence, all that I had hitherto witnessed or expected to witness in this strange house I believe to be occasioned through some agency or medium as mortal as myself. And this idea necessarily prevented the awe with which those who regard as supernatural things that are not within the ordinary operations of nature might have been impressed by the adventures of that memorable night. As, then, it was my conjecture that all that was presented or would be presented to my senses must originate in some human being gifted by constitution with the power so to present them and having some motive so to do... I felt an interest in my theory, which, in its way, was rather philosophical than superstitious. And I can sincerely say that I was in as tranquil a temper for observation as any practical experimentalist could be in awaiting the effect of some rare, though perhaps perilous, chemical combinations. 
Of course, the more I kept my mind detached from fancy, the more the temper fitted for observation would be obtained, and I therefore riveted eye and thought on the strong daylight sense in the page of my Macaulay. I now became aware that something interposed between the page and the light. The page was overshadowed. I looked up, and I saw what I shall find it very difficult, perhaps impossible, to describe. It was a darkness, shaping itself forth from the air in very undefined outline. I cannot say it was of a human form, and yet it had more resemblance to a human form, or rather shadow, than to anything else, as it stood wholly apart and distinct from the air and the light around it. Its dimensions seemed gigantic, the summit nearly touching the ceiling. While I gazed, a feeling of intense cold seized me. An iceberg before me could not more have chilled me, nor could the cold of an iceberg have been more purely physical. I feel convinced that it was not the cold caused by fear. As I continued to gaze, I thought, but this I cannot say with precision, that I distinguished two eyes looking down on me from the height. One moment I fancied that I distinguished them clearly, the next they seemed gone. But still, two rays of a pale blue light frequently shot through the darkness, as from the height on which I half believed, half doubted, that I had encountered the eyes. I strove to speak. My voice utterly failed me. I could only think to myself, Is this fear? It is not fear. I strove to rise. In vain. I felt as if weighed down by an irresistible force. Indeed, my impression was that of an immense and overwhelming power opposed to any volition, that sense of utter inadequacy to cope with a force beyond man's, which one may feel physically in a storm at sea, in a conflagration, or when confronting some terrible wild beast, or rather perhaps the shark of the ocean, I felt morally. Opposed to my will was another will, as far superior to its strength as storm, fire, and shark are superior in material force to the force of man. And now, as this impression grew on me, now came, at last, horror. Horror to a degree that no words can convey. Still, I retained pride, if not courage, and in my own mind I said, This is horror, but it is not fear. Unless I fear, I cannot be harmed. My reason rejects this thing. It is an illusion. I do not fear. With a violent effort, I succeeded at last in stretching out my hand towards the weapon on the table. As I did so, on the arm and shoulder I received a strange shock, and my arm fell to my side powerless. And now, to add to my horror, the light began slowly to wane from the candles. They were not, as it were, extinguished, but their flames seemed very gradually withdrawn. It was the same with the fire. The light was extracted from the fuel. In a few minutes the room was in utter darkness. The dread that came over me, to be thus in the dark with that dark thing, whose power was so intensely felt, brought a reaction of nerve. In fact, terror had reached that climax, that either my senses must have deserted me, or I must have burst through the spell. I did burst through it. I found voice, though the voice was a shriek. I remember that I broke forth with words like these, I do not fear, my soul does not fear. And at the same time, I found the strength to rise. Still in that profound gloom, I rushed to one of the windows, tore aside the curtain, flung open the shutters. My first thought was light. And when I saw the moon high, clear, and calm, 
I felt a joy that almost compensated for the previous terror. There was the moon. There was also the light from the gas lamps in the deserted slumberous street. I turned to look back into the room. The moon penetrated its shadow very palely and partially, but still there was light. The dark thing, whatever it might be, was gone, except that I could yet see a dim shadow which seemed the shadow of that shade against the opposite wall. My eye now rested on the table, and from under the table, which was without cloth or cover, an old mahogany round table, there rose a hand, visible as far as the wrist. It was a hand seemingly as much of flesh and blood as my own, but the hand of an aged person, lean, wrinkled, small too, a woman's hand, that hand very softly closed on the two letters that lay on the table. Hand and letters both vanished. Then there came the same three loud measured knocks I heard at the bedhead before this extraordinary drama had commenced. As the sound slowly ceased, I felt the whole room vibrate sensibly, and at the far end there rose, as from the floor, sparks or globules like bubbles of light, many-colored, green, yellow, fire-red, azure, up and down, to and fro, Hither, thither, as tiny will-o'-the-wisps the sparks moved, slow or swift, each at his own caprice. A chair, as in the drawing-room below, was now advanced from the wall without apparent agency and placed at the opposite side of the table. Suddenly, as forth from the chair, there grew a shape, a woman's shape. It was distinct as a shape of life, ghastly as a shape of death. The face was that of youth, with a strange mournful beauty, the throat and shoulders were bare, the rest of the form in a loose robe of cloudy white. It began sleeking its long yellow hair which fell over its shoulders. Its eyes were not turned towards me but to the door. It seemed listening, watching, waiting. The shadow of the shade in the background grew darker, and again I thought I beheld the eyes gleaming out from the summit of the shadow, eyes fixed upon that shape. As if from the door, though it did not open, there grew out another shape, equally distinct, equally ghastly, a man's shape, a young man's. It was in the dress of the last century, or rather in a likeness of such dress, for both the male shape and the female, though defined, were evidently unsubstantial, impalpable, simulacra, phantasms. And there was something incongruous, grotesque, yet fearful, in the contrast between the elaborate finery the courtly precision of that old-fashioned garb with its ruffles and lace and buckles, and the corpse-like aspect and ghost-like stillness of the flitting wearer. Just as the male shape approached the female, the dark shadow started from the wall, all three for a moment wrapped in darkness. When the pale light returned, the two phantoms were as in the grasp of the shadow that towered between them, and there was a blood stain on the breast of the female, and the phantom male was leaning on its phantom sword, and blood seemed trickling fast from the ruffles, from the lace, and the darkness of the intermediate shadows swallowed them up. They were gone. And again the bubbles of light shot and sailed and undulated, growing thicker and thicker and more wildly confused in their movements. The closet door to the right of the fireplace now opened, and from the aperture there came the form of an aged woman. In her hand she held letters, the very letters over which I had seen the hand close, and behind her I heard a footstep. She turned round as if to listen, and then she opened the letters and seemed to read, 
and over her shoulder I saw a livid face, the face as of a man long drowned, bloated, bleached, seaweed tangled in its dripping hair. And at her feet lay a form as of a corpse, and beside the corpse there cowered a child, a miserable squalid child with famine in its cheeks and fear in its eyes. And as I looked in the old woman's face, the wrinkles and lines vanished, and it became a face of youth, hard-eyed, stony, but still youth. And the shadow darted forth and darkened over these phantoms as it had darkened over the last. Nothing now was left but the shadow, and on that my eyes were intently fixed, till again eyes grew out of the shadow, malignant serpent eyes, and the bubbles of light again rose and fell, and in their disorder irregular turbulent maze mingled with the wan moonlight. And now from these globules themselves, as from the shell of an egg, monstrous things burst out. The air grew filled with them, larvae so bloodless and so hideous that I can in no way describe them, except to remind the reader of the swarming life in which the solar microscope brings before his eyes in a drop of water. Things transparent, supple, agile, chasing each other, devouring each other, forms like not ever beheld by the naked eye. As the shapes were without symmetry, so their movements were without order. In their very vagrancies there was no sport. They came round me and round, thicker and faster and swifter, swarming over my head, crawling over my right arm which was outstretched in involuntary command against all evil beings. Sometimes I felt myself touched, but not by them. Invisible hands touched me. Once I felt the clutch as of cold, soft fingers at my throat. I was still equally conscious that if I gave way to fear I should be in bodily peril, and I concentrated all my faculties in the single focus of resisting stubborn will. And I turned my sight from the shadow, above all from those strange serpent eyes, eyes that had now become distinctly visible. For there, though in naught else round me, I was aware that there was a will, and a will of intense, creative, working evil which might crush down my own. The pale atmosphere in the room began now to redden, as if in the air of some near conflagration. The larva grew lurid as things that live in fire. Again the room vibrated, again were heard the three measured knocks, and again all things were swallowed up in the darkness of the dark shadow, as if out of that darkness... All had come. Into that darkness all returned. As the gloom receded, the shadow was wholly gone. Slowly, as it had been withdrawn, the flame grew again into the candles on the table, again into the fuel in the grate. The whole room came once more calmly, healthfully, into sight. And that is the end of part two of the story. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. Thanks to Franklin Jones, Andrew Buchanan, and Samantha Hickey for your support on Patreon. Please feel free to come join them. The money goes back into the show and is used to pay for hosting fees, guest readers, new artwork, and other fun stuff like that. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you can. Vaccines are good for you and society, and you want to be a beneficial member of society, right? If you see a bigot out and about being a bigot, Play that tuba song. I don't know what it's called at them. There's a link in the show notes to the piece, and I think there's also a 10-hour loop of it on YouTube. So, you know, you're all set. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks so much for listening. 
Please pick yourself up a copy of the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, and I will see you next week.